Well, good morning, uh, Victory City family. So glad that you are joining back with us um, live this Sunday. We are just so grateful to Pastor Mike Jones for just opening up his church for us to be able to record um, our services here. We're just asking that you would continue to pray for us um, on our road to recovery as um, the cleanup and reconstruction everything begins with our church. Um, we're just so grateful for um, just having faithful friends. We also ask that you just pray for this church, pray that God just continue to bless this church that the word would continue to go forth. So we're just grateful to the Lord to be able to share um, in the word in this way. Um, we are also grateful to be back able to share the word of God as well. And, you know, we've been working since the beginning of the year through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave us. And, you know, I've been emphatic about saying that the most important thing that we learn about the ministry of Jesus in a world that wants new and special revelation, Jesus is consistent and his message is the same. Jesus actually reaches back to the word even when he could have said something new and he hinges himself on the word of God when it had already been spoken through the moral law of God. And we think that that is the most efficient way as well for us to be able to share in the word of God. And as we've been doing this, we've been discussing the very same things that Jesus himself has been preaching about and working through. And everything that he's talked about, we've been consistent to make sure that we hit that exact thing. Well, this week, like we talked two weeks ago about anger, we're talking this week about what it is in lust and how we can overcome lust. Now, just for me being able to say the word lust is probably the, the word that makes us cringe the most. And to be honest, it is probably the most overlooked struggle that all of us face every day in our lives. There is not a person who could say that they have successfully tackled, conquered and quenched the desire of lusting after things, whether it's money, whether it's people, whether it's um, whatever you may say that it is. There is not a person who can say that they have successfully and completely conquered the desire to lust. It is like that flame of old lady liberty. No matter how the years pass, you realize that the flame is ever shining and it never goes out. The reason, though, that most of us have struggled with and failed to deal with lust is that we see ourselves potentially almost on this upward trajectory, right? We see ourselves on this upward trajectory that as we get older, we think that we will eventually age out of lust, right? We think as we get older, those desires will, will flame away. And even as our body is not as capable to act on the lust that we may feel that eventually we'll just be done with it. But what you realize is that there is no aging out when it comes to sin. Unless we are sanctified, cleansed, washed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, sin will not ever get to a point where the flame dies. In fact, what you realize is that if you don't have Jesus, age only fans the flame of sin and it only grows worse and it, the flame only burns hotter. And so you could say that it is possible, though I can't ever completely conquer it, there is one way to at least overcome it 
in our lives, and that is to successfully commit ourselves to fighting against our desire to lust. Now, that's the fight of faith. Jesus is, for us, always the source of truth, and the Word of God is always the way that we find that truth. And we should be diligent to stay there, to remain faithful to God. So today we are picking right back up where we've been in uh, the book of Matthew, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular today, talking about what lust is, how dangerous lust can be. But also we're going to conclude with five steps to overcome lust so that if you are struggling with it, as I do, you're going to know the steps that you need, that we need to be able to overcome that. Let's go to the word of God. We're going to Matthew chapter five, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Father God, we thank you one more time for the word as we jump in. God, lust is a difficult subject that many of us do not want to talk about. Many of us. Um, do not want to address, but God, it is an ever-present reality for so many of us. And Lord, if we do not address it, um, the potential for lust in our lives is 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 damaging and dangerous and can be so destructive. So Lord, as we hear these words today, as we hear this sermon, God, please open up our eyes, but also open up our minds so that we can be honest with ourselves and with you about who we are and where we find ourselves so that we can address the sin that is so present in all of our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see very quickly in verse 27, Jesus begins by saying what we had seen him say previously. You have heard it said, which is, again, him saying, you have heard this misinterpretation of the law. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. You remember two weeks ago when we were talking about anger, he said, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. Do not murder. Now, what he's doing is he is addressing in general what the old scribes and Pharisees and rabbis and religious leaders took from the Decalogue, from the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and what they said the law was saying. But he's correcting that misinterpretation, which is that it's not just mentioning this specific thing as long as you don't commit the act, you're innocent. But it's actually talking about the root cause of the thing, which usually lies deeply in our hearts. And so he carries us right back to that same theme in this text. So for them, the question is, what was it they heard regarding adultery? What was it they heard regarding lust? Same thing they heard regarding anger and murder. Do not commit murder. Here it's do not commit adultery. Now, 
For us, we're probably thinking, well, that's in reference to somebody who's married. Do not get in a sexual relationship with somebody who's married, either if you're married or the individual is married. But this text clearly is not just for the married folks, right? This text here is pretty much a catch-all term for any sexual immorality. And so when the, when the, the Decalogue, when the Ten Commandments here says, do not commit adultery, it's not saying just for the married people, do not have improper sexual relations with one another. It's talking about all of us having a sexual morality or immorality. That is the reference. Do not be sexually immoral. And so when it's talking about that, we're understanding that even the term do not commit adultery for them is a very generic term for all sexual immorality and what could come along with it. Now you say, well, that doesn't really make sense. That sounds very specific. But let's not pretend that we don't have our own terms as well. How many of us has, as a euphemism for sex, said that somebody's sleeping together? I think we would all acknowledge that they're doing far more than just sleeping, but that is our catch-all term for all of the sexual relations that they're probably engaged in. In the same way that we had a term for sexual relationship, so is the term adultery for all sexual immorality. Do not, this is what it means, do not be sexually immoral. This is just like when the law says do not murder. Of course, it is about all of the things that lead to murder itself. It's talking about the root of anger, the root of rage, the root of wrath in our lives. And if we don't address those things in our hearts, then the end of that sin, once it has been fully grown in our lives, will be murder. In the same way, the full growth of lust in our lives will be sexual immorality. And there's no doubt about it. And Jesus knew this. And so he addresses this by saying, you have heard that you should not commit adultery. But I say now, again, Jesus is not raising the standard of the law. We think that he is. But he's actually saying what God meant when the law was given. I'm telling you the true interpretation, which is, is not just about the commission of the act. It's looking is lusting and lusting is doing. That is the purpose of what he says. And so I want to give you this analogy. It says, which is, we should not be driven to lust, first of all, but understand it like this, so that I can make it as plain as possible. Lust is to sexual immorality what anger is to murder. It's the same thing. As anger is the root cause of murder, so is lust the root cause of all sexual immorality. So what's the meaning of the law? Do not be driven to lust. Do not be driven to lust. So again here, Jesus is not raising the standard that set by saying that looking is lusting, but he is correcting how they had read the law improperly. For proof, the Old Testament is full of this understanding. This is where he's pulling it from. If you don't believe me, let's look at what Job 31 and 1 says. This is what Job says in the Old Testament, right? 
says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job clearly understood that accountability was multi-layered. He made a covenant with his eyes and that covenant would have been understood to have been made ultimately with God. And he says that if he has made a covenant, why would he then even think upon a maid as is actually written in the original Hebrew? So the word when it says gaze actually means that that gaze is penetrating your heart, which penetrates your mind to the point that you can't get that thing, that thought, that lust out of your mind. And so what he's doing is that he's addressing the root cause. There is clearly a connection that between the heart, between the thoughts and between the eyes, eventually there will be an action. There will be an action when lust begins in the heart, leads to a thought, leads to lusting and leads to action. And this is the thing here. This is where the deficiency is found. It is not merely an issue of action as we all try to do. We all try to police our actions. But unless God himself is circumcising our hearts, we have no ability to withhold ourselves from committing all types of immorality. And sexual immorality is included. See, it's not just the eyes. It's not just the action. But it's an issue of the heart. The reality is that we all have a deficient heart. We learn that in the Bible, and unless we get new hearts from Jesus Christ, we have no hope in being obedient to the law of God. And it is the heart where all desire for us is produced. Look at what Proverbs 6, 25 says. So you can see that it's not just in, in Job, but it's also in Proverbs. It says, do not desire her beauty not in your head, not in your flesh, in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The word for desire here is too long for to long for or passionately want. But again, it's not a desire that starts in the flesh. That's where we make the mistake. We try to police the flesh, but that is not where sin is conceived. That is where sin is completed. Sin for all of us is conceived in the heart, completed in the flesh. And so he says, do not desire her with your heart. The root of our lustful, desirous thoughts is in our hearts. Lust fuels all types of sexual immorality and there's no need for me to list them all lust fuels all types of sexual immorality no matter how we're trying to define it so then it is not enough to be innocent please hear this it is not enough to be innocent because you lack opportunity for a lot of us some of us are just too ugly, too unattractive to act out on the lust that we wish we could act out on. Just because you old and unattractive does not absolve you from what you would do if you could do. That's the reality for many of us. 
There are many of us who are grossly perverted and the thoughts trample over our minds and in our hearts. And we envision what we could do if we had the ability to do. Now, the reality is, is that we can mock and, and ridicule the person who is found guilty in the sins of their flesh. But what about the sins of our hearts? What about the thoughts that we have allowed parade our minds and pervert our minds? And just because we haven't acted on them, we think that we are not as guilty as the person who is. You remember, Jesus said to the woman who was found in the act of adultery, if there is anybody who is without sin, cast the first stone. Now, I've given you this context before, but I want to give it to you again, just in case you forgot. In a stoning, in a stoning, if you were guilty of the same sin, you could not throw a single stone. So when he says he who is without sin, he says he who is without this specific sin, throw the first stone and they left. Which means they all knew they were as guilty as she was. They just hadn't been caught. This is the reality. Many of us are struggling with sins in our hearts and mocking and ridiculing people who have been caught in the flesh. But God is still judging our hearts as well. And while we think we're escaping the hand of God, there will be a day where a verdict will be rendered on the hearts we have, not just the actions we did. Or didn't do. And that would be the reality. Just because one does not have the opportunity to act. Does not mean that you are innocent. God doesn't merely look at us without the opportunity. He looks at us as if we had the opportunity. What we would have done. Because God knows our hearts. That's one of the things that people say when they try to let themselves off the hook with some sort of sin or some coarse, idle word that they use. Oh, the Lord knows my heart. But they don't realize that there's really condemnation that comes with those words. Yes, he absolutely knows your heart. So in understanding all of this, I think we do need to ask this question. What is God's big deal? With sexual immorality. What is God's big deal with lust? Like what's the real issue here? And, and th these are the kind of things where preachers would get up and they'll talk. But they don't really address this. Why does God make such a big deal about it? What is he really trying to address here? Let's really try to work through this and parse through this and take time with it. According to God, according to the moral standard of God, I don't care what the world says, according to the moral standard of God, there is only one context by which sex is a moral act. One context. And that is when it is between a married man and a married woman. And because it's 2021, 2021, let me be even clearer. That is from a man who was born anatomically a male and with a woman who was born anatomically a female and they're married to each other. Okay, so there's no wiggle room for anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying here. That is the context. Anything outside of that context, anything else is sexual immorality. I hope that's clear. Because I'm trying to be as clear as possible. 
That's lusting, touching, watching, saying, typing, texting, and much more. So why? What's the big deal? It's just sex, right? It's just sex. No. It's a covenant. That's the big deal. God does not play with his covenants. He has made that clear from the Old Testament to the New, to the New Testament. He does not joke around with his covenants. Just in case you don't believe that it's a covenant, though, I have a scripture for you. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6.16. This is what Paul says regarding it. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, he's using this term to address a specific immorality. But if it applies to a man and a prostitute, it applies to a man and any woman that they join with, whether inside or outside of marriage. You are making a physical covenant with that person. You are making an emotional covenant with that person. This is actually, though, quoted from Genesis 2 and 24. What happens when you treat sex as just another random activity? What happens? You make all of these physical and emotional and spiritual covenants with all these people, and it leads to emotional and spiritual brokenness. And what happens, which is even worse, is that when you break these covenants, it leads to even more spiritual and emotional brokenness. You become joined and dependent on these people in a way that you should only depend and be joined to your spouse. That's it. Now, you may know it, but it absolutely leads to the breakdown of society. It leads to the breakdown of society because at the core of every society, there is the family. And as the family unit is eroded in society, so is the society eroded. This is the destructive reality of lust. It misdirects what God has reserved for the married to any object at all. Think about what sins lust has precipitated in our own world. So Jesus standard is this. That everyone who looks with lustful intent. How destructive is this? Remember what happened to David. You remember what happened to David? David probably having seen Bathsheba at some point before does exactly what Jesus and this proverb and Job says do not do. He goes to the rooftop while everybody else were, was fighting. He does what we do. Oh, I'm just going to Google this thing and I'm not really going to. Um, use any spirituality or use any discernment and wherever this thing takes me, I guess that's where I'm going. He goes up to the rooftop where he should have been fighting where the other men were. And, you know, he's just taking a break, just around walking, gazing. And, oh, I forget that I'm up here at the time of day that Bathsheba usually bathes. 
And he just so happens to peer and something obviously catches his eye. And from that moment when he sees her, he cannot get it out of his mind because it already permeated his heart. And by the time it permeated his heart, this is what he does. He looks and he lusts. It's just that simple. Lust was the ember and the murder of her husband was the flame. The death of the baby that they produced was the full picture of destruction that lust can cause in our lives. That is it. The dangers of lust are personified in the failure of David. That is the reality. And we can all point back to all of this death and destruction as one lustful and unbridled experience by David. When we are alone, when we are on social media, Instagram, Google even, what are we looking at? What are we looking at? What is catching our eye? What is seeping into our hearts? What is tattooing our thoughts? What are we looking at? What thoughts are going through our minds? So, it is a matter of the heart. But Jesus offers us, and I love it, because, you know, we think, oh, he's only speaking figuratively, maybe. But he offers us quite a crude description on how to deal with lust, doesn't he? Now, of course we know he isn't speaking literally because the whole purpose of what he's saying is that lust is an issue of the heart, not just an issue of the flesh. It's produced by the heart and acts through the flesh. But he is demonstrating for us just how seriously lust should be taken. So how do we overcome lust? What is the way that we overcome lust in our own lives? I can tell you this. Clearly, it's not the self-mutilation that Jesus describes, right? It's not cutting off the hand. It's not taking the eye out. But it has to be something that we can pinpoint. Now, I know you're thinking, you know, to answer this question, we really need to look at why we are led to lust in the first place. What causes us to lust? What leads us to lust? What drives us there? A rudimentary question, perhaps, but... If you understand that so much of our our sin is related to our discontentment and our desire for pleasure and to cope. In other words, we seek fulfillment from things that aren't God. I've been reading Augustine's confessions and Augustine's very open about the fact that he dealt with lust as a young man and really struggled with it and obviously quite often acted out on it. But he makes this point, and I think it's very important for us to understand. In Augustine's Confessions, he makes mention that the biggest issue that we have is that we look at the creation as beautiful more than we see the beauty of the God that created it. And what often happens is we take things like sex and other things that we find pleasurable, not because they are the gift from God in their proper context, which should ultimately make us admire his beauty but we take the thing that God has created for our pleasure and we admire its beauty because we're looking for its fulfillment we're looking for its peace we're looking for its joy no matter how temporary it is and Satan knows that and so he takes these temporal things 
And he makes us fall in love with the things that are disappearing. He has another quote that he says that his, his desire to love somebody who was destined to death caused all sorts of grief because he loved them as if they would never die. I think the reality for us is that even in our lust, even in our sins, we love what we love in the moment that we do as if there will never be a consequence to pay for that thing. We lose all sorts of rationality because we are enamored with the pleasure that it will bring that we can't see the destructive elements of our lives. That is the reality of who we are because we are not fulfilled with God in the way that we should be fulfilled. We do not find pleasure in God. We do not find hope and joy in God. So we find it in the most temporal, self-gratifying things. That's why. And if we can get that, then we will grasp why we lust after things that aren't God. Now, this is also the thing. The older church told us, this is what they told us, and I heard it, I'm sure you did, that sex was wrong. Sex was evil, and the desire itself is sinful. But if God created the desire for his glory, is not the desire itself that's wicked, we are. If God changes us, then the desire to be fruitful and to multiply will ultimately be used for his glory and to increase those in the body of Christ. So it's not the desire that's wrong. It is not the desire that is evil. But when it is misdirected by our wicked hearts, it will lead to all sorts of sin. But let's be clear. Jesus has said, the word has said that sex is a gift for the marriage. So we ain't not going to talk about it. It's a beautiful thing in the right context. We have to give it value as the church because if we don't, the world would devalue it and treat it as just another activity and we won't stand for it. It is the most beautiful thing a husband and wife can do to celebrate their oneness in their physicality. But anything outside of that context is an odor in the nostrils of God. That is what scripture says. But the reason why I think we have seen so much come out of churches with women and men and things that were happening is because we wouldn't talk about it. And when we should have been glorifying it the way that God talked about it, we just demonized it. And we don't talk about that. We don't do that. We don't address that. You got to wait until you get married. So what happened? Let's go back to what Paul said. You remember we talked about this. Paul said, I wouldn't have known sin, but it was the law that introduced me to it. He said, not because the law is bad, but because I am. He said, I didn't even want to covet until I read in the law, do not covet. And he said, it aroused all sorts of covetousness in me. We did the same thing. We told our young people, we told some of the older people, don't even think about it. Don't talk about it. And what did it do? It aroused the desire in them because we didn't tell them how beautiful it was in God's context. And so they went to the world because the world was talking about it. The world was celebrating it and they got a distorted reality because of it. And this is what happened. That bad teaching incited more sexual immorality. It led to more unwed mothers. It, it led to more aborted babies. It led to more broken families. 
And it even led to abuse from people within the church. That's what happened. No, this is not singularly the church's fault. But I will say that the history of many holiness and old school churches was that they hurt more than they helped. And we have to address that. So I do want to actually give us ways to combat lust in our lives without cutting off our body parts, as Jesus mentioned, which was obviously hyperbole. There are five things I want to give you, and then we're going to close. The first one is this. Admit your weaknesses. Admit your weaknesses. The greatest believers knew that they were not incredibly strong, but that they were incredibly weak. Paul even knew this, and we look at the life of Paul, and we think, how in the world are you weak? But he knew he was an incredibly weak man. He said, I'm so weak that God had to send a thorn in my flesh, because if it wasn't for the thorn, I would have been puffed up in myself. I would have been vain in my own ways. If you read the diaries and the writings of some of the greatest Christians, American and, and European Christians, you will see that as they grow older, their idea of themselves does not improve. Because as they grow older, they know how incredibly weak and fragile and broken these vessels are if we don't have a holy God who is filling us up with the Spirit. That's the key. Admit your weaknesses. And the Bible makes it clear that the strength of God is made perfect, not in our strength. In our weaknesses. Number two, know your temptations. Know what you like. Know what you're attracted to. Know what you're you're drawn to. To thine own self be true. Don't just admit your weaknesses, but you also need to know what they are. And you need to know what you don't need to be around. You need to know what you can't handle because if you don't know or you don't admit that you have a weakness or that something tempts you, you may surround yourself with something that could lead to your destruction. Number three, know the escape route. First Corinthians 10, 13 says this is one of the best verses. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Don't under, don't overestimate your strength and your own ability. One of the beautiful things I love about the story of Joseph and all the things that happened is that when Potiphar's wife tried to get him to have sex with her with no accountability, no other people around, he ran. He ran. Now, we don't know if he was tempted or not, but we do know he found a way of escape. He left his cloak and he got out of there. It takes a lot of man and a lot of woman to run away from your temptations. Know the way of escape. Number four, find what is deficient in your life. Find what is deficient. You are lusting after the result of God's beautiful creation, but not the creator. You need to know why. You need to know what it is you're seeking for in the lust, in that conversation, in that picture, in that man, in that woman. What it is that's deficient in your relationship with God. 
Search your own heart. Allow God to search your heart. Examine yourself. And if you can point out what's deficient, you can know why you're lusting after what you're lusting after. And number five, desire and be fulfilled by God's word above all things. That's it. Nothing else will satisfy you when you are drenched in the word of God, when you are enamored with the word of God. There is nothing else that will bring you the pleasure that that brings you. There is nothing else that will bring you the peace. There is nothing else that will bring you the contentment that the word of God will bring you. So if he or she walks by or sends a text or sends a a picture that could damage everything that you are, you say, this doesn't compare to the word of God. This doesn't compare to my relationship with God. I'm more fulfilled with God, in God, by God than I ever would be with you. Just that perspective alone will save many marriages, will save many ministries, and will save many people their careers if they had their perspective. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. Lord, we thank you that... Um, you have given us the guidebook. You have given us the outline, God. We all in various ways are struggling and wrestling with the lust that is in our lives, the lust that is in our hearts, God. But so much of it can be pointed to our lack of contentment, our lack of fulfillment in you. So, Lord, we pray as we've heard this sermon today that you will open our eyes, that you will point us to where we need to find that contentment and fulfillment with you, but that you will make it clear to us these five important steps to follow you, God, that we will not allow lust to creep into our hearts, God, that we will fight this fight to our dying day. Because, God, at the end of the day, you will judge our hearts. And, Lord, you have told us that the only people who will be received of you are those who have clean hands and pure hearts. And that's what we long for. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.